Hello everyone, I'm Michael Levine, a graduate student and one of the producers on Big Biology, and I'm opening the show today to announce our newest venture, the Student Spotlight. We talk to a lot of established academics about the big unanswered questions in biology. Now, we want to give any and all students, undergrad to PhD, a bigger platform to talk about themselves and their work. Send us an audio recording, the cleanest one you can make, of your elevator pitch. 30 to 60 seconds about the work you're doing in terms accessible to a general audience with enough personal flair to leave your creative mark on it. Include your name, student status, social media handle, lab, and institution. Then send that over to info at bigbiology.org along with a high-quality photo of yourself, preferably one from the field if you've got it. We'll post them on our social media for everyone to see. We'll choose two or three to tack onto the end of every episode we've got moving forward. Then, at the end of the season, we'll choose four to be fully interviewed by Art and Marty for a special student spotlight episode. Now, enjoy this episode. We wanted to mention a couple of things before starting this episode. We want to give a shout out to our patrons. A whole bunch of you signed up to become monthly donors in the last few weeks, and those monthly donations make a huge difference. Thank you so much. And remember, as a patron, you get access to great bonus content and some perks. For example, Conan Phelan and former Big Bio guest Cam Gallimbor joined the Metazoan tier last month, so they get a shout-out. On Patreon, we also post show notes for every episode and our Meet the Scientist interviews, where we ask our guests about totally non-science-related topics. In a Meet the Scientist interview from last year, Peter and Rosemary Grant explained how they survived on nothing but tuna on a remote island in the Galapagos. Basically, what we get is tuna and rice and oatmeal. So we're there on the islands for as long as three and four months. Mm -hmm. So we take down what we call a tuna repair kit. And a (laughs) tuna repair kit consists of herbs and spices and Indian spices so that we can make the tuna and rice dish taste a little bit different every (laughs) evening. And we eat porridge for breakfast. So, so, so are you sick of tuna at this point? Or are you? We never eat tuna when we get away from the <laughs> Go to patreon.com slash bigbio to become a monthly donor. That's patreon.com slash bigbio. And one last thing. We're trying to firm up our advertising schedule for season three. So if you're a company or organization that wants to advertise with us, send us an email at info at bigbiology.org or contact us over social media. Here's the show. In 1943, the physicist Erwin Schrödinger gave a series of public lectures at Trinity College in Dublin on the question, what is life? He pointed out what seemed like a paradox. Living things operate like orderly machines, even though the second law of thermodynamics says that systems should move toward disorder. Their entropy should increase. Life's machines accomplish this trick by consuming energy from the environment, food for animals and sunlight for plants. Then they export disorder into the universe in the form of heat. Organisms might seem like they're circumventing entropy, but they're actually open systems, so they're continually feeding on external order to maintain order within. In his recent book, The Demon in the Machine, Paul Davies, our guest today, picks up where Schrodinger left off. Paul proposes that understanding information is the key to understanding how organisms escape the ubiquitous tentacles of entropy. As a cosmologist at Arizona State and the director of the Beyond Center for Fundamental Concepts in Science, Paul uses the term information differently than we do in everyday conversation. He defines information as a decrease in uncertainty. For example, if you flip a coin, you can't know initially whether it landed on heads or tails. You're uncertain. 
But once you look, the uncertainty is reduced to zero, so you gained information. In his book, Paul uses a classic thought experiment from physics and philosophy known as Maxwell's Demon to review how life uses information to do work. In the thought experiment, a tiny fictitious entity, the demon, knows the velocity of every gas molecule in a divided box. By controlling a shutter between the two sides of the box, the demon could allow fast-moving molecules to pass through to one side and slow-moving molecules to get stuck on the other. In other words, just using information, the demon could generate a temperature gradient within the box, which he could then use to do work. Paul thinks that Maxwell's demons are fundamental to life. For instance, in the book, he claims that voltage-gated ion channels, which are integral to how our nervous systems work, represent forms of biological demons that use information. Paul's emphasis on information is much broader than these molecular demons, though. He argues that information is a major part of the answer to Schrodinger's original question. After all, the concentration of information in life is what distinguishes it from most everything else in the universe. Paul points out that for most non-living things, we can understand them here and pretty much anywhere from basic quantum mechanics. For instance, we can predict the properties of hydrogen here on Earth as well as at the edge of the universe. And we just can't do that for life. Consider how DNA relates to the organism in which it's housed, then compare that to how hydrogen behaves in a water molecule. For water, there are no surprises. Sure, it's amazing with a particular chemistry that interacts strangely with so many things. Critically, though, it behaves that way everywhere it exists, and it always will. Life, however, is much more complex. Because it's replete with information, life's behavior is context-dependent. DNA reliably produces RNA, which reliably produces proteins, but the particular phenotype that emerges when genes are expressed is not a natural progression from basic physical principles. The whole decoding system, too, can change so that the relationship between information inherent in the structure of the DNA molecule depends on the interpreting machinery in which it resides. For life, information changes the rules of the game. Consider a wicked good chess playing computer program. It can pick out one of the next best moves as long as the rules stay the same. These days, not even human grandmasters stand a chance against the best programs. However, if a human were to play this Cyber Kasparov, and the rules change mid-game, say, when the human loses her queen, she can now move her bishop in any direction, the otherwise unbeatable computer program loses its advantage. The space of possible outcomes in a regular chess game is already huge. After just three turns, the chessboard could take 121 million possible forms, and in total, there are many, many more chess games that could be played than there are atoms in the universe. If the rules change at just one stage, the variety of next possible plays is effectively infinite. We're only going to be able to understand biology when we get away from this idea that goes back to Newton, which is where our discussion started, of immutable laws, that there are fixed laws, uh, that they will never change, that uh, this is inappropriate in biology, uh, where the context is all, and the rules of the game will depend on the context. And so uh, what we would like to do is formulate mathematically a notion of laws that are functions of the state of the system, the overall state of the system. On this episode of Big Biology, we talk with Paul about the roles of information in life, how scientists might build a life meter, and what new physics might come out of biology. I'm Marty Martin. And I'm Art Woods. And you're listening to Big Biology. But I wanted to start with uh, a question that Erwin Schrodinger asked in, in the 1940s. What is life? And... Um, I, I love this question because I often ask it to my undergraduate biology classes, 
And I get all of the usual sort of typical things that you might expect from, you know, beginning biology graduate students. But from, from your perspective, what, what is life? I've puzzled over this, of course, throughout my entire career. I read Schrodinger's little book that was based on the lectures he gave in Dublin in 1943 when I was a student. And I remember thinking, hmm, well, yes, you know, life is really weird. I think everybody uh, who thinks about the world about them will realize that life stands out. Living things are in a class apart. They uh, perform the most amazing feats. They seem to be different uh, in a very fundamental way, and not just difference in degree, but difference in principle from non-living systems. They are very, very odd. Now, biologists tend to not uh, find their subject matter quite so odd because, of course, they're dealing with it every day. Life's what they study, yeah. so they sort like, of, of take course. it for granted. Of course we know what it is. <laughs> but to a physicist, it looks like magic. Uh, it really does. And I remember thinking, well, I suppose uh, if you take a living organism, it's made up of normal atoms doing normal physics things. Uh, how is it that a collection of these uh, stupid atoms blundering around just following the rules of physics can collectively combine to produce some what looks like magic, some form of magic? How can that happen? Mm -hmm. and, and it is very, very profound mystery. Uh, and uh, I... Uh, revisited that topic several times during my career. I had occasion to come back to it from different points of view, but it's only in recent years I decided to really drill down and try to get to the bottom of reconciling physics and biology, trying to understand the physics of living matter, not, the, not what life does, but what life actually is. And I mm. just think in the last few years, we've been able to glimpse where the answer lies. I don't think we've got... Mm all the details mm -hmm. now down, but I think we know now mm -hmm. where to look um, and how, how to move the project yeah. forward. Yeah. So, so I think our, our talk today is going to cover a lot of aspects of that. Maybe let's start with just thinking about the second law of thermodynamics and entropy and, and how it is that, that life can escape that. So... At first sight, when we look at living organisms, they seem to defy this most fundamental law of physics, the second law of thermodynamics. And just uh, for those of our listeners who may not know what that is, uh, it's a, a universal principle that is easily recognized. It says that uh, systems left to themselves tend to degenerate and decay and become more messy, that chaos triumphs over order. Uh, any of our listeners who have teenage children would uh, have some idea what I'm talking about. Uh, oh, yes. Know that well. And I sometimes say it's, it's easier to break it than make it. So this is all very familiar. Uh, and the best way, the starkest way of demonstrating the second law, take a movie film of an everyday scene and play it backwards. Well, of course, everybody laughs because it's so preposterous. We realize that there is a directionality in events. And if you look very carefully, this is a directionality from more ordered to less ordered. And the entire universe is on a one-way slide to uh, what may be a final state, often called the heat death of the universe, in the very far future, in which uh, everything has sort of run down and all sources of energy have been dissipated and nothing further of interest would happen. Uh, and life does seem to buck that trend. It seems to go the other way. It seems to create order out of chaos. And so what is the answer to that? And that's one of the things that Schrodinger identified in his lectures and in his book, based on the lectures, that life bucks the trend of the second law of thermodynamics. Uh, and if you want to know how it does it, just the quick answer to this is that 
uh, a strict reading of the second law refers to closed systems. So if you have a box of gas, for example, typically impenetrable box, uh, maybe you've got oxygen on the left and nitrogen on the right and a screen separating them and remove the screen and they become all intermingled after a short period of time and you can't unintermingle them you can't separate them out again and that's one good example of a, a more orderly state going to a disorderly state but it's a closed system living systems are open systems there has to be a throughput of matter energy uh, from their environment and an output of the quantity that physicists call entropy which is a measure of this chaos that is uh, what the second law thermodynamics tells us is going up all the time. So they export this entropy, they export, if you like, they disorder into the environment and they import order. Uh, Schrodinger expressed it rather quaintly by saying that living organisms drink orderliness. Uh, <laughs> that's one way of thinking about it. So they're open systems. So there's actually no contradiction. But just because there's no contradiction, you must be careful, doesn't mean the second law of thermodynamics explains life. It just says there's no contradiction there. We still don't have an explanation. And just, just really quick, where, where does the disorder show up in the environment? Well, uh, there's a very depressing way that it shows up if we think about uh, Darwinian evolution, that uh, it works uh, because of the survival of the fittest. And what about uh, the non-survival of the less fit? Uh, the, mm -hmm. uh, for every biological innovation that works successfully, there's a very large number of failures, and these end up uh, as decaying or degenerating or often consumed uh, organisms that, uh, that uh, had the wrong uh, setup. And so there's a, a trail of uh, disorder, damage, decay, uh, and degeneration uh, behind us in biological systems. That's looking at mm -hmm. the uh, overall picture. If you look at the uh, everyday picture for a given organism uh, that... Uh, basically, I think uh, everybody knows that uh, we metabolize by burning food. And when you burn something, you make heat, and uh, that's why we're warm. And this heat uh, dissipates away into the environment. And it's a classic example, just like when you burn anything, the entropy goes up and the heat goes off into the environment. You can't get it back again. So that's mm -hmm. uh, that's why mm -hmm. we need to eat to live. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Mm. So. Uh, you write a lot in the book about, um, as all scientists would, what are we going to measure and uh, the difficulties of the life meter. Um, with the complexities you've just been talking about, how should we be thinking now about assembling one of these life meters and maybe using it in the near future, surveying the, the you know solar system for, for life or maybe other parts of the planet too? I love this idea of a life meter. Uh, it, this is uh, r really... Uh, a the brainchild of my colleague Sarah Walker, and we uh, use it as a device for, in many cases, pointing up the absurdity of trying to uh, discern life by quantifying it. Life is qualitatively different from anything else we know, uh, but it does rather starkly uh, show how difficult it is for NASA, for example, the U.S. Space Agency, uh, who, they, they want to go and find life elsewhere in the solar system as to what to actually look for. Now, if we see life as we know it, of course, then there are many recognizable features. But supposing what we're dealing with is life, uh, but not as we know it, uh, what are the universal features? What would a life meter actually measure? And this was brought starkly to our attention because of a proposal to fly through the plume of Enceladus. Now, Enceladus is a, an icy moon of Saturn, 
and it's got cracks in the icy crust, and there's materials spewing out from those cracks. Uh, Enceladus has a liquid interior, and it's been conjectured that maybe there's life down there beneath the ice, uh, and there, could there be some trace of that life spewing out in these plumes? And so a spacecraft is going to fly through uh, that uh, those plumes and analyze the molecules coming out. Now, what is going to convince you uh, that there is life? And also, how would you discriminate between something that was alive but is now dead, something that is prebiotic, that is complex organic molecules but have not yet achieve life uh, and something that's truly living. Uh, can we imagine mm -hmm. that after this mission, the NASA scientists will say, well, we had this suite of instruments and we can report that uh, nice try Enceladus, you've had four and a half billion years to cook up life, but you've only got 73% of the way there. Well, <laughs> uh, you, I, I don't think any of us would expect an answer like that. But if we can't uh, quantify what we might call almost life, uh, then how are we ever going to explain the transition from non-life to life? How can we explain this long pathway from a mishmash of rather simple molecules up to what we might regard as a primitive, truly living thing? There'll be a long pathway of complexification. Uh, and this is some way of assessing your progress along it. How will we ever understand what it means for life to arise from non-life? So I think it's a very good thought experiment, the life meter. I don't think we're ever going to have anything quite like uh, the way I'm describing it, but as, as a, an attempt to focus our attention on what is life and how will we recognize it when we see it, uh, we, have to, we have to have some idea of, of the pathway to life, of, of mm -hmm, not quite mm -hmm. there. Uh, mm -hmm. and, we, and we don't have that. There was a scientist that was involved um, with the Viking landing on Mars. I know him well. And, and advocates. So you, you want to talk a little bit about the labeled release project and the extent to which that type of thinking and those types of measurements might be useful for the life meter? Uh, we're talking about Gil Levine, and uh, mm -hmm. I, I know him well, and he's actually an adjunct professor at the Beyond Center here at Arizona State University, but he's very elderly now. We don't see him uh, often, but we correspond a lot. And uh, he is convinced he found life on Mars. So his experiment, which went on Viking in the mid-70s uh, on both the Viking landers uh, and gave positive results on both, uh, consisted of uh, a nutrient broth that was radioactively tagged with radioactive carbon. Uh, and this was poured on samples of Martian dirt to see if it, they fizzed. And they did fizz, and uh, it could detect the carbon dioxide coming off exactly as it would with terrestrial organisms that metabolize the nutrient broth and then emitted carbon dioxide as a waste product. Uh, now, that on its own was not very convincing, but when the samples were heated, I think to 140 degrees, uh, then the fizzing stopped exactly as you would expect if you killed them with heat. And this was repeated at both sites uh, many times with positive results. Now, the reason that NASA did not say, well, we've discovered life on Mars is because uh, they failed to find at that time any traces of organic molecules. They were looking for those as well. Uh, we now understand that that was uh, going to be always going to be difficult because of the highly oxidizing nature of the Martian soils. And so... 
I think that objection really uh, has has gone away. And so to this day, uh, the labeled release experiment of Gil Levine stands out like an inconvenient truth uh, in the history of astrobiology. Uh, it is certainly possible that some unusual soil chemistry mimics those results, and at the end of the day, that will be the explanation. It's also consistent with there being life uh, in the surface of Mars in the in the in the topsoil there in the Martian dirt. I think it's unlikely there's life there. I have to say it's a very hostile environment. But having been to the Atacama Desert and seen organisms living in pillars of salt in the driest conditions on Earth, very, very harsh, and yet they can find a way to make a living, it's not impossible. I wouldn't rule it out that mm. there's life on the surface of Mars. Mm. It's kind of amazing that that the later Mars missions didn't follow up more strongly on that, or 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 did they? And the data are are not not consistent with Levin's findings, or what, what's what's the story? You raise a very interesting and uh, politically sensitive issue, uh, which is why didn't NASA simply try again? Now, there's one way in which you could get much more convincing results, and that is uh, to use the technical term chiral discrimination. We know that all uh, life on Earth uses left-handed amino acids and right-handed sugars, but the laws of physics don't care left over right, and we can imagine that uh, there could be some form of life that is uh, around the other way. Uh, but certainly uh, on Earth, uh, that's the way around it is. And if you have a nutrient broth made of molecules with the wrong-handedness, uh, that's indigestible though, to terrestrial life. And so if you have two experiments, one with, say, left-handed amino acids, the other with right-handed amino acids, and you feed these to terrestrial organisms, one of them will fizz and the other won't. And Gill wanted to have both uh, to go on the Viking mission, uh, but uh, for reasons of cost, he could only uh, use the broth that uh, terrestrial organisms like. Uh, mm. So to repeat that, experiment with the chiral discrimination uh, would be a very, very useful thing to do. It could all be micro-miniaturized now. It can be done for a fraction of the cost. Um, I think it should be done. And, and NASA has adamantly refused to do any biology experiments on the surface of Mars. And I find this infuriating uh, because the media presents every Mars mission that NASA mounts as a search for life. The one thing mm -hmm. they have not done is look for life. They've looked for the conditions that may have been conducive to life in the far past or something like that, and that's okay as far as it goes, but they absolutely will not do any biology experiments. Well, I want to shift gears now and uh, talk about another big issue that forms, the, the I'd say, the core of your book. Uh, so your latest book is called Demon in the Machine. And let's just talk about what you mean by demon. Uh, let's talk about Maxwell and and heat. So how do those, how do those three things go together uh, in your book? Uh, the demon in the title refers to uh, what is known as Maxwell's demon. So James Clark Maxwell was a giant of theoretical physics working in the 19th century. It was he who united the laws of electricity and magnetism to give us the theory of electromagnetism that explains, for example, radio waves, which uh, people are listening to us now. Uh, and uh, showed that light is an electromagnetic wave and uh, many other 
consequences follow from that. But he also made foundational contributions to the theory of heat. And it was that uh, that, in a letter to a friend, led him to propose what became known as Maxwell's demon. And this is an imaginary being, a little uh, entity, uh, small enough that it could discern individual molecules in their paths. And uh, by using a sort of shutter mechanism uh, in a box of gas, could sort all the fast-moving molecules on one side of the box and the slow-moving ones on the other side. And then any competent engineer could tell you that they could build uh, a machine, a, a, a heat engine, that could run off that temperature differential and do useful work, such as lifting a weight or something of that sort. Uh, now, the remarkable thing is, when you look at the details, that this demon itself can operate without consuming any energy, uh, and it can transfer heat from the cold part of the box to the warm part of the box uh, in defiance again of the famous second law of thermodynamics. So this seemed to be a thought experiment that showed that the second law would be insecure if you could have such an entity. Uh, now you might think, well, doesn't a refrigerator take heat from the cold interior and put it into the warm kitchen? Sure, uh, but you have to pay the electricity bill for that. The demon's not wired up to the national grid. <laughs> it, it operates entirely without friction, entirely without energy source. Instead, it uses information as a fuel. Uh, the demon gets information about the molecular speeds and directions and uses that to gain a thermodynamic advantage and do useful work. So it indicates, although Maxwell never expressed it this way, that information is a type of fuel uh, and can be used to run an engine. But, and the big but here, is that this demon is awfully small. Uh, and in those days, this was very much just a thought experiment, a molecular size information processing system. But today, uh, with advances in nanotechnology, we can actually build Maxwell demons. And now this is part of engineering and experimental physics. So the, de mm -hmm. the demon idea is uh, absolutely valid and it's now part of practical nanotechnology. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So, so if I can just paraphrase, maybe for our listeners, so, so the demon itself is watching molecules approach it, and it's making decisions based on its perception of whether it's a fast-moving hot molecule or a slow-moving cold molecule. And by sorting at that molecular level, it can it can basically uh, create order from disorder by by sorting those particles. Yes. So, so the price the price it has to pay though is it needs to collect information about those about those particles, right? And so that that's what makes this whole thing, in fact, be consistent with the second law of thermodynamics. Is that is that right? Well, uh, the uh, problem about the second law of thermodynamics took decades and decades to uh, resolve, because at the time that Maxwell proposed the demon, uh, it looked like this was a paradox, uh -huh. and there were many many versions uh, of demons that came afterwards, all the, the way right up until most recently Richard Feynman uh, had a version of Maxwell's demon. Uh, and, and it's uh, really taken a long while to get to the bottom of this, but uh, the short answer is that uh, this uh, demon uh, will need to uh, garner the information and store it in some sort of uh, register and then process it and use it to manipulate the shutter appropriately or whatever mechanism it is. Uh, and then uh, of course, uh, 
if you want to run your kitchen refrigerator off this, uh, you've got to go on doing it again and again and again. It's not mm -hmm. sufficient to just have some minuscule bit of uh, work done. You want to uh, repeat it in a cyclic manner. And to do that, the demon has to uh, have its register cleared. In other words, it's got to be brainwashed and reset uh, to start again to perform the next part of the cycle. And that erasure of information turns out to uh, increase the entropy of the system by uh, precisely the amount that uh, the um, that the demon uh, gained by its manipulation. So at the end of the day, the book's balance. But the point is, it demonstrates that uh, a judicious, uh, down at the nanoscale, a judicious use of information processing can play the margins of the second law of thermodynamics. And uh, this has now been demonstrated, as I said, uh, in uh, labs all around the world. People, it's sort of cottage industry now, people making these Maxwell demons and demonstrating that, yes, uh, information is a fuel. It can be used. You can measure uh, the amount and all the theory works out just fine. Uh, um, but uh, as so often in science, Nature got there first. It turns out that living organisms have been using, in effect, Maxwell demons, legions of them. Yeah, uh, for, I wanted to hear about examples of that in life. Billions yeah. of years. Uh, yeah. and, and so they're not violating the second law of thermodynamics. It's not that demonics somehow explains why living organisms buck the trend of the second law of thermodynamics. It's just uh, that they're playing the margins of the second law and are extraordinarily, in some cases, really extraordinarily thermodynamically efficient uh, in a way that uh, if we tried to, to, on a macro scale, try to mimic what living organisms do, where there would be no chance at all of getting anywhere near that level of efficiency. What, what, are, what are some biological examples of, of demons? Uh, well, um, uh, the example that I most like uh, is the one in the brain, because uh, the um, neurons in the brain send signals to each other down these long, people say wires like axons. They're really tubes with a membrane. Um, whereas in a typical electrical grid, for example, uh, electrons literally flow along the wires. The way in which in the brain, the way in which it works is that uh, there are uh, holes uh, in the wall in the membrane uh, surrounding these axons uh, and they're and these are called gated ion channels because the holes can be opened or closed by in effect little maxwell demons that sense uh, an ionic uh, pulse coming along and they open or uh, close these holes and let sodium ions and potassium ions uh, flow in one direction or the other and this maintains um, a, a voltage difference across the uh, the uh, membrane of the axon and that uh, causes the signal to propagate from one neuron to another, and that's how we think. Now, this is very much like the original conception of Maxwell's demon, that it's opening and closing a shutter at an appropriate moment using information from the environment. Uh, and as a result of that, the brain is, uh, I think, famously energy efficient. So the human brain has the power of a megawatt supercomputer but it runs on the equivalent of a, a dim light bulb. And I like to say, in some cases, very dim. <laughs> some of us are dimmer than some others. Of us are yeah. just burned out, yeah. <laughs> uh, and so it's, it's still quite far from the, 
thermodynamically perfect limit that you can discern from theory, but nevertheless, uh, it is at a, an astonishing advantage. There are many other examples as well. For example, the way the, uh, the DNA uh, is uh, read off or the way DNA is replicated, the enzymes, the molecules that uh, chug along and perform that are very, very close to thermodynamic perfection. Uh, in some cases, they can even run backwards. And so that's always an indication that you're not expending very much energy. Uh, and and so I like to say that our bodies are replete with Maxwell demons chuntering away, uh, carrying out the business of life. We don't notice them, uh, but they're extraordinarily important for uh, getting life to operate efficiently. But I also uh, mm. uh, throw in the caveat that life is much more uh, than playing the margins of the second law of thermodynamics for uh, energy efficiency. Uh, the role of information in life that's, that shows you the little chink uh, that, uh, that shows that information can couple to matter and bring about real physical effects. Information is a physical thing, a physical quantity. Uh, but biological mm -hmm. information uh, is far more powerful than that in ways that we could uh, talk about uh, uh, in a moment. Can we can we talk about and maybe define information? Um, because I think you wrote this in the book. Information is a concept that once familiar and pragmatic, but also abstract and mathematical. I think to go in the directions where Art and I have our, our questions in the future, um, we need to operationalize information a bit more. As so often in science, we have something that is part of daily discourse. Uh, information is one of those things. Uh, I like to compare it with energy. People talk in a loose mm -hmm. way about energy, but Scientists have a very precise way of defining what they mean by energy as an abstract concept. And energy is one of these things that can be changed from one form to another. It can be passed on. Uh, maybe it's electrical energy one minute and gravitational the next and heat the next. Uh, but it's, it's always conserved. Uh, so information is a similar thing. We use it loosely in daily life. Uh, but uh, in what I'm talking about, it's uh, a real physical thing that is also conserved. Uh, you know that just from if you have a, a file on your computer, which you download onto a memory stick, uh, then you can uh, maybe send it down optical fiber or uh, over a microwave link or something like that. So the physical instantiation of that information uh, changes, but the information content remains the same. So from that point mm -hmm. of view, it's rather closely uh, related to the concept of energy. And so we want to have an abstract definition of information that we can then use and apply to things like Maxwell's demon. And that definition, the one that's uh, current, goes back to the work of Claude Shannon in the 1940s. Now, Shannon was tasked with the problem of how do you send uh, a message down a crackly telephone line or over a noisy radio channel in an optimal manner, the least chance of having the message misunderstood or garbled. And so this has to do with channel capacity and coding and all these things, which has become a really, really important part of modern science and engineering. But he quantified information in a very simple way, which is reduction in uncertainty. So if you toss a coin, uh, you don't know whether it's heads or tails until you look. And when you look and maybe it's heads, uh, suddenly that uncertainty is reduced from 50-50 down to uh, a certainty, uh, a probability of one. Uh, and 
you you can say that you've gained the information, heads or tails, and that means your uncertainty about the state of the coin has been reduced. So that defines one bit of information, one binary digit or bit. I think we all know this term bits and, and bytes which follow from them. This is in common parlance, but that's where it stems from. That's a very simple beginning, uh, but it's a very precise one mathematically. Uh, and you can apply Shannon's information theory to Maxwell's demon and sort out all of these problems about entropy, you can relate it to entropy, and, and all of that works uh, very well indeed. Uh, but um, just because we can uh, quantify the information maybe swirling around in a li living organism uh, doesn't really cut it when it comes to explaining what makes life so very different because those same bits of information can swirl around the national grid for example but we wouldn't say that that's uh, living and certainly wouldn't say it's conscious uh, and so we need to uh, take uh, and I should say that uh, Shannon himself was at pains to point out he was only interested in the efficiency of the propagation of information through a channel he uh, had nothing to say about the meaning of the message, the significance of the message. And I think we all understand that when it comes to not just human discourse, but to biology generally, uh, that the, the meaning is really important. And I'll just give you an obvious example. Uh, everyone knows about genes. What are your genes? Well, they're instructions uh, for a molecular system, a ribosome, say, and uh, all the attendant molecules to build a protein. So it's an instruction for building a protein. It's like an instruction manual for the living organism. Uh, and so those instructions uh, are useless unless there's a, a system that can understand and implement and uh, act on those instructions. So there has to be, uh, th these instructions have meaning, but only a meaning to uh, a system that actually has the key. Uh, to understand them. And I use the word key advisedly because these genetic instructions are encoded, they're encrypted. Uh, there is a universal mathematical code that all known life on Earth uses the same one. It's one of a stupendous number of possible codes. And there's a table, you can look it up, uh, and it'll show you how uh, particular symbols in the four-letter alphabet of DNA translate into particular symbols in the 20-letter alphabet of amino acids that make mm -hmm. up proteins. Uh, so it has to be mm -hmm. encrypted and decrypted. And so we're dealing very clearly with uh, a type of information which is, um, for want of a better word, is, is meaningful, or uh, these words are loaded, of course. I like to say they're contextual that uh, you, you put a gene in any random molecular milieu uh, and it won't do anything. Uh, it has to be in the right environment, in the right context, for it to actually be biologically functional. So functional information is contextual, uh, but the key concept here is that it's, it's that when I talk about context, that's a global system. It's a system as a whole has to uh, couple so the information which is contained uh, in, in this case, in, in DNA. And so this is where we really part company with traditional ideas of physics, where everything that happens, happens locally, happens at a point. Uh, if you take an electron, for example, it's got an electric charge. Uh, it either has a charge or it hasn't a charge. It's, it's on the electron. It's at that point. Uh, you don't need to refer to the wider environment. You can't look at a nucleotide and DNA and say, yes, that has biologically functional information, uh, or it doesn't. It's only when you put it in the 
system context that it really uh, makes sense. So this is uh, we have to have a systems approach to a new kind of physical law that will explain the physics of living matter. So, so you just talked about information being encoded in, in DNA and the information flow to, to make proteins, but there's a lot of other information in organisms. And you have this, this lovely section in the book on um, epigenetics. So things besides the genetic sequence that themselves contain information and that are meaningful for, for organisms. So, so what, what, where, where is that information and how is it manifest? You're absolutely right that uh, the information contained in DNA, the genetic information, is something that people are familiar with, uh, but uh, uh, it doesn't stop there. Uh, So genes rarely act in isolation. Uh, They can switch each other on and off, and they can form networks sometimes of great complexity, and information swirls around these networks, and sometimes they're uh, very much like components in some electronic system. They form modules, and these modules in turn couple to each other, uh, form bigger networks. Uh, And we're talking here, uh, unlike in electronics, about uh, uh, components being wired together chemically, not electrically. But the same principles apply, uh, that these are logical operations that uh, these components can carry out, and they can uh, compute and uh, regulate and uh, fulfill many of the functions of modern electronics and computing, but they're doing it uh, at the uh, with a chemical basis. And so uh, genes form networks, uh, but uh, it doesn't stop there because cells themselves can form communities. They can signal each other chemically. So we're using this information language all the time. Where we talk about cell-cell signaling, uh, cooperation among colonies of cells. Even uh, bacteria can form communities that can carry out uh, coherent tasks. Uh, And then when we come up to multicellular organisms, uh, take social insects, for example, Uh, one of the really fascinating areas of study here at Arizona State University is with ants and ant communication. And they form colonies Mm -hmm. and they engage in collective decision-making. You can see these pictures where ants are sort of clustering around, uh, you know, having a little conference and uh, you're wondering, you know, what are they talking about? Um, uh, And uh, and we're beginning to understand now, uh, now there's no sort of um, chief ant that says, uh, you know, okay, lads, and it's not lads because they're all female, Uh, uh, gals, (laughs) (laughs) you know, we're off to a new nest. It's one of these things that is done uh, collectively. It's distributed across them and it's done through information exchange through all sorts of chemical and physical cues. And it goes on all the way up. We've talked about the brain. This is the biggest information processing system that that we know. But again, it doesn't stop there. It really encompasses the entire planet. Planet. When we look at ecosystems, there's a lot of information flow. Uh, there are mobile genetic elements, things like viruses that get around the environment, couple uh, widely separated systems together. So I like to say that the biosphere is the original World Wide Web. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> so, so just thinking about uh, within organisms, so without going beyond, so is, do you think it's possible or, or even meaningful to partition how much information occurs at each of those levels you discussed? 
Uh, in principle, we can certainly uh, quantify the amount of information. Actually, measuring it can be uh, really difficult. Uh, and uh, I come back to the point that uh, just a, a, a bit count of you know how much information is stored or processed and so on uh, probably isn't going to be very illuminating because it's the way the information is used. It's the type of right. information that is important. But we have research projects uh, here at ASU looking at, for example, gene regulatory networks. I've talked about these uh, and the information uh, uh, going around in those. And uh, one of the things that comes across, uh, which was very striking to me, is that the information in the network somehow takes on uh, quite literally a life of its own. That is, that we can forget about the underlying circuitry uh, and just concentrate on the software. Uh, and this is very similar to what you do with a computer. Uh, that if you've got a bug in your computer, uh, that, uh, you know, some uh, something like, you know, Photoshop has got a glitch in it. You know you can fix this by downloading a new version or maybe a patch from the manufacturer will fix it. Uh, what you don't do is take the back off and fiddle around with the wiring. Right, uh, right. Because, you know, somehow that software, the images on the screen, I mean, we know ultimately it's all traced back to uh, things going on down at the molecular level, the electrons and so forth. But the, the software has a life of its own. And the entire industry uh, in uh, Silicon Valley is uh, supported by treating uh, software or a, a complex information as a commodity that can be manipulated in its own right. And uh, the fact it uh, has to be instantiated in a physical system is sort of secondary. Um, the, the software has, takes on its own importance. You see this in life as well. You see it even in gene regulatory networks. Uh, it's, it's as if the information patterns, uh, the patterning uh, becomes the thing to study. And, and I firmly believe that the yeah, medicine yeah. of the future will uh, look for uh, defects in these patterns, software defects, and try to fix organisms through software uh, upgrades and patches rather than mucking around with the hardware. So is, is, is that a way of saying, in, in effect, that the important many of the important things about biology are emergent processes? It's information encoded in these sort of higher level modules. And, and in a sense, you can disconnect those from all the information that's swirling at the lower level. Yes, you're, put, you're putting it very well. That's right. Um, uh, so I think this concept of emergence, you know, it's a buzzword. It's been around for quite some decades. Whole books get mm -hmm. written on emergence and uh, uh, students will often stare blankly if I use that term. And so I have to, I have to contrast <laughs> it with reductionism, the idea that everything that happens can ultimately be explained down at the level of atoms or subatomic particles or strings or whatever is your favorite bottom level. And we all know that this <laughs> is a sort of promissory reductionism because nobody's ever going to figure out how you or I will vote in an election by studying uh, the superstrings uh, inside us or anything like that. You know, it just doesn't, doesn't work. <laughs> the ultimate way. predictive science. Uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so w we know that at uh, each level of complexity, there can be new and, uh, fundamentally significant properties which emerge that have their own rules, their own laws. Um, and we see this in, in physics all the time. And really, the argument boils down to a philosophical one. Though, do we just treat these higher level laws and processes um, as just a practical way of, of dealing with the system, which, you know, in some dream world, some scientific utopia could ultimately be explained at the bottom level? Or do you 
uh, like me say, no, these are actually fundamentally new physical laws and principles that are emerging at these higher levels and that we, uh, we can treat uh, in biology, we can treat uh, information patterning as a thing in its own right, which will have its own laws, which we're still trying to put together. But that's where I think the, the real answer to, um, to the Schrodinger's question, what is life, lies. It, it won't lie with trying to understand in ever greater detail uh, the molecular structure of DNA or, or proteins or something like that. It's got to be at that informational level, which is a, a higher emergent level. I think it might be useful now to to talk about uh, the specifics about information and maybe von Neumann's universal constructors and, and how the thinking about biology as a or at least the role of genes in biology's read-write types of phenomena is a little bit different than a lot of biologists work on. Extended evolutionary synthesis has been advocated by a lot of biologists recently, and I think the perspective that you're advocating for information it comes at things a little bit differently than the modern synthesis of the 1930s in evolutionary biology would advocate. Can you, can you speak about where von Neumann's ideas and universal, universal constructors might take us with respect to the need for an extension of the evolutionary synthesis? Well, let me start by saying that I think a great deal of the conceptual foundation that is uh, now at the cutting edge of trying to understand living systems emerged from work done during World War II. It's a quite remarkable thing. And so, for example, there was Alan Turing, famous for breaking the German Enigma code and uh, sa saving Britain from the U-boat menace. Uh, and then I've already mentioned Claude Shannon, his work, which began essentially as war work uh, about the information down noisy channels. Uh, and then we have uh, John von Neumann, who was involved in the Manhattan Project, but who was very deeply interested in the nature of life. And he came up uh, with the equivalent for a robot, if you like, or a machine that Turing had come up with for mathematics and the computer. So uh, Turing uh, had this notion uh, that there could be a machine that could compute anything that was in principle computable. And the modern electronic computer is still sometimes called a Turing machine. Uh, and so uh, this was the notion of universal computation, and von Neumann had the idea of universal construction. So you would have a machine that could be programmed to make uh, anything that was physically possible, given the components that you uh, had access to. So you would uh, give it a lot of blocks or something, you know, could make something. But now, uh, could you have a machine that could be given the instruction to make itself, make a copy of itself? Uh, and... Uh, what von Neumann realized that you could certainly do that, but without making a copy of the instructions and putting those instructions into the uh, progeny, uh, then it wouldn't be true self-replication. So he saw that as a critical step. And the, for me, the uh, conceptual issue there that he, uh, that he illustrated so well is that a decision has to be made as to whether... Uh, the instruction set is software to be uh, implemented or hardware to be copied. Uh, and this is directly the case with DNA. When you think about it, DNA does two quite separate things. One is it just sits there and gets read out, so it's just software. And then 
when the time comes for the DNA to be replicated, it lies back and just gets copied. It's just a physical object and it gets copied with uh, all its flaws as well. Uh, and that's the way life works. But there has to be some uh, decision made as to what happens when. And it's clear that there's no little being sitting inside a cell uh, running the show. There's no command and control center uh, that the uh, decision, hardware or software, which aspect of DNA is going to manifest itself is a sort of global decision. We come back to the system. It's a systemic decision. So this unit that von Neumann talked about, he called it a supervisory unit. Um, there isn't a little organ or organelle within a cell uh, that is, oh, that's von Neumann's supervisory unit. It's distributed. It's a global thing. Uh, and so we get here again to this sort of system uh, approach or the top-down approach, as it's often called. Um, and so this already is a, a big departure from the way people uh, think in biology. Uh, and uh, von Neumann's ideas uh, of self-replicating machines, I, I should just say uh, parenthetically that the closest that I can think of coming to it today, in case uh, listeners are a bit mystified, uh, is a 3D printer that is uh, run with an old-fashioned uh, tape, punch tape with holes in it, uh, that is a physical object that would run through the 3D printer and, and make another 3D printer, and then it would make <laughs> a copy of that physical object with the holes in and put that uh, tape into the new machine. And so that's getting actually really rather close to what von Neumann mm -hmm. had in mind. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so this yeah, way beautiful. of thinking about living organisms uh, certainly demands that we go beyond the uh, original uh, grand synthesis in biology where genetics and Darwinism were united, which has been very powerful. Uh, and uh, it, for a few decades, I think it um, led to a lot of useful advances, but it, it was clearly limited. And uh, the, the concept of the selfish gene, this wonderful term that Richard Dawkins uh, coined, uh, which is, uh, is, is so evocative, uh, I, I think... Uh, many biologists now feel, well, that's only the bottom level uh, and mm -hmm. that there are many levels above that and this, this is the, the genes are not all and that we now have this field of epigenetics. I selfishly want to ask a question about another topic that I've thought myself about quite a bit and that we did an early podcast episode on, and that's the idea of scaling. So systematic changes in organismal properties across a range of, of body sizes. And um we, we talked with uh, John Harrison, who's uh, a physiologist at Arizona State, and, and Jim Brown about this. And I would say the typical biologist thinks about scaling in terms of, you know, matter and energy and distribution networks inside bodies. And there's been, maybe you're aware of this, a, a large controversy over the last 20 years about, about what leads to scaling of, of phenotypes like uh, metabolic rate. So, so thinking about scaling in terms of your ideas about information, do you think, is, is there some novel idea about scaling that invokes the way information is collected and processed by organisms of different size? What you've just suggested is extremely interesting, and I wish I had the answer, and I wish I could tell you that we were <laughs> we were working away on this. Uh, uh, no, it's it, what you're uh, saying seems uh, entirely reasonable, that there would be uh, a sort of informational scaling law. I vaguely thought mm. about uh, how we might go about finding such a thing, uh, but it seems uh, entirely likely. My general 
philosophy about thinking of living things is that uh, we mostly notice the physical stuff, the flesh and blood, if you like. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't see uh, the software, the information patterns swirling around inside us, uh, and yet evolution acts to sculpt those information patterns just as it acts on the physical form. And then if we're talking about scaling from some uh, you know, a mouse to an elephant or something like that, uh, that, that there must be um, a way of characterizing that in terms of the total information content. The only time I've uh, really thought seriously about this is something called Pito's paradox, which is uh, mm -hmm. that why don't uh, elephants get more cancer than mice because they're so much bigger, there's more cells to go wrong, um, and uh, generally speaking, they don't. And we do have an active research project here at ASU looking at, uh, in the case of the elephant, that has been explained. They have multiple copies of the P53 tumor suppressor gene. Translating that in terms of, of an informational story, um, that you clearly could do that. I haven't thought to do it. So uh, thank you for that suggestion. Well, let me ask a, just one last question, and this is something that we talked briefly with Sarah Walker about last year, um, but do you think that life will reveal new laws of physics? Yes, I do. Uh, now, Schrodinger hinted at this in his book. He said, uh, basically, that life is so baffling, we must be prepared to find a new kind of physical law prevailing in it. Now, notice he said a new kind of law, not just a new physical law, not just another law of physics, like all the other ones, uh, some differential equation. but Something a new... qualitatively different. Absolutely. And I think that's inevitable. And we've been talking a lot about systems approach, about the global and the couple to the local, uh, about information distributed and uh, epigenetics uh, the, and there being no local supervisory unit in cells. And all of these things uh, convince me that uh, if we're going to have uh, a new law in biology, something to explain uh, living matter. It has to be a new kind of law that embraces the systems approach. And Sarah and I have been dabbling around here. We've had a few ideas. Uh, we've been using basically cartoon models of life called cellular automata, uh, in which we try out this uh, sort of global, this top-down causation, this global local coupling, uh, and look for new pathways to complexity. And so I think um, we're only going to be able to understand biology when we get away from this idea that goes back to Newton, which is where our discussion started, of immutable laws, that there are fixed laws, uh, that they will never change, that uh, this is inappropriate in biology, uh, where the context is all, and the rules of the game, I'll use rules rather than laws, it's less grand, the rules uh, that uh, system, biological systems might obey or subsystems within them uh, will depend on the context. And so uh, what we would like to do is formulate mathematically a notion of laws that are functions of the state of the system, the overall state of the system. Uh, perforce, those laws will change with time, or those rules will change with time, but time is not the key variable, it's the state of the system. And once you have state-dependent laws, you open up pathways to forms of complexity that are simply impossible by fixed laws or fixed rules. Uh, and the analogy I like to give is with the game of chess, you can play chess according to fixed rules, and you can get certain patterns of pieces on the chessboard. 
but if you just put down uh, chess pieces at random, chances are that that would be an impossible state for the chess uh, if you uh, try to start with the usual configuration. But if now you allow the rules of chess to change according to the state of play, you know, if white is winning, you change the rules uh, for black, for example, move pawns backwards instead of forwards. That's a silly example, but see what I mean, uh, that we, we would then achieve impossible states on the board, states that you could not reach by following those fixed rules. And, and that's the mm -hmm. sort of idea we have, that life does seem to do magic. It's, it, uh, it does seem to achieve the impossible, things that could not be achieved by non-living systems, and that the best way of getting at that is having these this notion of state-dependent rules. Many of the ideas that Paul discussed will be familiar to big biology listeners. We talked about similar things with astrobiologist Sarah Walker in episode 9. Sarah also talked about the search for a life meter, the same theoretical device that Paul said would be able to quantify how much life is in a plume of space dust around Saturn's moon Enceladus. Sarah also looks to information as a key characteristic that distinguishes life from non-life. Here's how she put it in her interview in 2018. Um, and so I think the origin of life process is really this transition where you have systems that where information is not really um, a prominent part of the physics of those systems to ones where it really is. And so we really have to understand how is it that information actually starts to gain control over the dynamics of the system and becomes an important part of it. And then most of the unfolding of the biosphere over the last four billion years, in my mind, is building um, increasingly um, abstracted levels of informational structures. Life is chock full of information, so much so that it's one of the things that makes life unique and leads Paul and Sarah and others to predict that at some point, biology will lead to new laws in physics, something that Schrodinger himself expected too. On the next episode, we're talking with Scott Turner about the idea of intentionality in biology and his new book, Purpose and Desire. Scott proposes that understanding the role of homeostasis can get us out of the vitalism mess that has worried people for so long. When you think about how adaptation actually works, you have to start dealing with certain uncomfortable concepts in the framework of standard evolutionary theory, which presents itself as a fully scientific picture of how evolution works. And, and bringing in concepts like intentionality and purposefulness and things like this, which I think you must do if you're going to have a sound concept of the phenomenon of adaptation, uh, that starts to, you know, as I say, make people uncomfortable. And, uh, you know, that to me is, is an area that there, therefore we need to kind of explore to get to the, get to, uh, uh, I, I think, a fully coherent theory of what we're talking about. We know you love the show, so become a financial supporter on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash bigbio, or you can make one-time donations on our website. Thanks to Matt Blois for producing the episode. Mike Levine runs our social media channels and creates content for the Patreon page. Dana Baxter helps with background research, and Steve Lane manages the website. Thanks to the College of Public Health at the University of South Florida and the College of Humanities and Sciences at the University of Montana for support. Music on the episode is from Poddington Bear. 